The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Appreciate you all being here with us this morning. Um, We're going to get back to 1 John eventually at some point. But right now, my goal and intention is just to try to be an encouragement to the body of Christ. I mean, we're going through some uncharted waters right now in this country. We're going through some very difficult things. People are scared. People are confused. They really don't know what to think. And things like this in our media don't help. This is our Virginia paper from last Thursday. Virginia's outlook is grim. Really? And then it says, if you can't read under that, it says, models show an ominous picture of coronavirus surge in the Commonwealth. But how dire depends on if people stay home. So in other words, this is, you know, good old-fashioned scare tactics people that just say, it's really grim here, but if you just stay in your house, maybe things will get better. Uh, It's just sad. So for the sake of our sanity, I want to continually try to remind us that Yahweh is still on the throne. Isaiah 6.1 says this, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Israel's king, Uzziah, had died. (laughs) I was like, I'm hearing something here. (laughs) Uzziah was a military man who had defeated Israel's enemies. He had brought them peace. Uzziah was a good king, and he'd been reigning for 52 years. Five years before Uzziah's death, Tiglath-Pileser, the Assyrian general, was on their northern border. And he was cause for concern, but Uzziah was there, so they had confidence in him. But when Uzziah died, all of a sudden fear is setting in. Now what? Tiglath-Pileser's on our border. Uzziah's not around anymore. What do we do? Well, Isaiah goes into the temple and he sees Yahweh. He says, I saw Yahweh, saw the Lord sitting on a throne. In effect, he is saying, in the day that the human king died, I saw the king of kings. He sees God on his throne. He is still in control. No matter how bad things look, God is still on the throne. He is ruling and he is reigning. You know, we often as children of God act as if God had been dethroned. Psalm 103.19 says, Yahweh has established His throne in the heavens. His kingdom rules over all. God is ruling people. He's ruling on everything that's happening. So don't let circumstances discourage you. God is in control. You know, if we look at life from the human viewpoint, we have nothing but sorrow and discouragement. Because we're focusing on the human viewpoint. But if you look at life from the divine viewpoint, the divine viewpoint, you can rest in God's sovereign care. And if I could just encourage you, you know, a lot of, lot of stuff going on right now. Like I said, people are confused. People are scared. And I'm hearing all this attack on our president. Oh, he's not handling this right. He's not doing anything right. Let me tell you this, folks. I believe that our president and the patriots have everything under control. I believe there's a plan in effect right now that's going to change the course of American history for the good. But it's just going to take some time to work out, and it's going to be painful to get worked out. So we just have to be patient. I think we as Christians should be praying for our president. He's in an incredible place. I can't imagine how he gets up every morning knowing that he's just under attack constantly. So please pray for him. Pray for the patriots. Things are being worked out. All right, about 20 years ago, the country singer Jody Messina put out a song called That's the Way. The lyrics were instructive, I think, and here's some of the lyrics. She says this, Everybody wants an easy ride on the merry-go-round that we called life. Isn't that true? We just want it as easy and as calm and as nice as we can be. She says, Take a drive on cruise control, then you wake to find it's a winding road. I had my dreams in view when the money ran out and the engine blew. So we want the easy ride, but that's not always what we get. Sometimes life is difficult. The chorus says this, well, that's the way it is. You've got to roll with the punches. 
That's the way it goes. You got to bend when the wind blows. You live, you learn, you crash and burn. It's hit or miss. That's the way it is. And that's true, people, in life. It's not always simple and easy. It can be very difficult at times. And I have to say that most people, Christians included, would just like to have the easy road to life. But let's face it. Life isn't easy, and at times it can be extremely difficult. Are we having problems with the sound today? I'm hearing that from people that we're having problems with the sound. Okay. <laughs> You're funny. I don't know. I don't know what... <clears throat> okay. Alright. In the midst of difficult times in life, there's two things. It doesn't sound like we are. <laughs> All right. In the midst of difficult times, I think there's two things that can bring us great comfort. And I want to focus on those for this morning and hopefully use them as an encouragement. Two things that bring us comfort. Number one, our trust in the providence of God. We've been talking about that for the last several weeks. But secondly, the love and care of our friends. Now let's talk first about the first one. What is providence? Well, the term providence is not found in the Scripture. But the doctrine of providence is very scriptural. The theological term providence means nothing short of the universal sovereign rule of God. Providence is the persevering and governing of all His creatures and their actions. Charles Hodge said this, The external world, rational and irrational creatures, things great and small, ordinary and extraordinary, are equally and always under the control of God. To me, the doctrine of God's providence is just the most comforting doctrine. God and God alone determines what happens in this universe. In the book of Ephesians, Paul put it this way in Ephesians 1.11, In Him, we have also received an inheritance, because we were predestined according to the plan of the One who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of His will. Did you get that? In eternity past, Yahweh had a plan. And in time, He's working out that plan. So Yahweh works everything according to the counsel of His will. According to the plan that He's laid out, He works it. Now, objectors try to argue that all things or everything couldn't possibly mean all things or everything. If it did, it would rob us of our free will. And we would make God the author of evil. Some say that catastrophes, such as earthquakes, hurricanes, and pandemics, or plandemics, are outside of the all things that God has planned. They can't square these events with a loving God. But the Scriptures clearly teach that God's sovereign will involves everything that takes place in life. All events in time proceed from His plan. And absolutely nothing takes place by chance. It's of the utmost importance that we understand this if we're going to find comfort in the difficult times. See, no one can harm you in any way apart from the decree of your loving Heavenly Father. What an encouragement to the child of God. Now, there are two ways in which God works in the world. Alright? He works through providence and He works through miracles. Now, God's governing of the natural is His providence. A distinction is usually made between what they call ordinary providence and extraordinary providence. That would be miracles. In ordinary providence, God works through second causes in strict accordance with the laws of nature. But in extraordinary providence, He works immediately without the mediation of second causes in their ordinary operations. Just a miracle. He just does whatever He wants to do. Now, the distinctive thing... The miraculous deed is that it results from an exercise of supernatural power of God. God just supernaturally does something that's very out of the ordinary. A miracle has no natural explanation. God works without secondary causes in miracles. Let's look at this miracle in Luke chapter 7. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a woman who had died, I mean a man who had died, was being carried out, the son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town 
was with her. Now, I love the details here. This is the only son of his mother, and she's a widow. What does that tell us? Okay, she has no one to care for her. There's no Medicare. There's no welfare. There's no anything. They were to be taken care of, widows and orphans, by the church, by the family of God. See, orphans and widows represented the most needy class in the ancient society. They had lost their protector, their provider, and were subject to a lot of affliction. And God's care for widows is a recurring theme in the Scriptures. We see it all through the Tanakh. The nation Israel had sought to care for widows because God had taught them to do that. Jewish law laid down that at the time of his marriage, a man ought to make provision for his wife should he become a widow. That's probably a good law. And I'd have to ask us today, men, have you provided for your wife should she become a widow? Or will you leave that burden on others? The heart of God is that widows be cared for. We see this in Yeshua's compassion for this widow. It says, and when the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her, and He said to her, don't weep. So He comes across this funeral procession, and He's he's feeling compassionate for this widow. And caring for widows was an important ministry in the early church. We see this in Acts 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So, here we see the first ministry that the early church developed was to care for widows. They didn't start a building program. They didn't start a Christian school. They cared for the widows. Ignatius said, Let not widows be neglected. After the Lord, be thou their guardian. Now, notice how Yeshua takes care of this widow. It's totally supernatural. Then He came up and He touched the beer. And the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Yeshua gave him to his mother. How would you like to have been at that funeral? I've been to a lot of funerals. I've done a lot of funerals. I would love to see something like this. I mean, think about it. Yeshua walks up to the coffin and he tells the dead man, Arise. I say to you, arise. And you know there's a lot of people in the audience there thinking, This guy must be nuts. Okay, what is wrong with him? But their laughter is really suddenly turned to astonishment when the dead guy sits up and starts talking. He sat up and he began to speak. What did he say? Hey, thanks, thank you all for being here. I, really, I didn't know I had this many friends. Appreciate you all coming out. Uh, or maybe he sat up and said, hey, why are you all crying? I, I'm okay, you know. Now, had you been at that funeral, what's the first thing you would have done upon leaving? Tell somebody else, right? I mean, you couldn't wait to talk to somebody about this. Guess what happened at Joe's funeral? Twitter, (laughs) Twitter, yeah. Twitter would be ablaze, you know. Guess what happened? This is not natural, people. This is supernatural. And God, at times, works supernaturally through miracles. The virgin birth was supernatural. The parting of the Red Sea was supernatural. We see many acts of God supernaturally. He supernaturally fed the Israelites for 40 years. God works through miracles, but He also works through providence. And most of the time, God works through providence. And providence is when God takes all the diverse elements of the natural and He orchestrates them to accomplish His purpose. Now, what seems more difficult to you? Providence or miracles? Now, I'm speaking humanly, of course, because God is omnipotent, which means God can do anything and He can do anything as easily as He can do anything else. Nothing's difficult for God. But to me, providence seems much more difficult than a miracle because in providence, God takes a million different circumstances and arranges them to accomplish His will. In a miracle, He just goes, boom, this gets done. And when you come to understand that a sovereign God is not only sovereign by supernatural intervention, we love that, we'd love to see that. God, intervene, do something. He is also sovereign by natural orchestration. And when you understand that, you'll have a confidence and a commitment in the circ- a contentment, I mean, in the circumstances of your life. 
God's ruling. He's reigning. God usually works out His sovereign plan through ordinary circumstances. He uses means to accomplish His ends. We can see God working out His sovereign plan through the ordinary events of life very clearly in the book of Esther. And and I would encourage you, when you read Esther, read the whole thing. Just sit down and read through it. It's an amazing story. It's an encouraging story. And as you read Esther, you see the hand of God in every circumstance. God was sovereignly at work through ordinary circumstances in the time of Esther as He was through the miracles in the time of Moses. The book of Esther is set during the era when the Persians ruled over Judah. It was in the reign of King Xerxes. His Hebrew's name is Ahasuerus. The Jews became subject to the Persian Empire when Cyrus the Great, king of Media and Persia, conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. Babylon had taken over Judah in 605 B.C. and many of the Jews were deported to Babylon as captives from 605 to 586. The NIV Cultural Backgrounds Study Bible states this. Not only is Esther the only biblical book that contains no reference to God. This is significant, people. God's not mentioned in this book. It also contains no prayers, sacrifices, or any other religious observances. To say that this, is abs- to say that this absence is unusual would be an understatement. Almost all ancient Near Eastern literature is permeated with religious language. The lack of religious references in the book of Esther is highly remarkable and almost certainly intentional. Perhaps there is some deliberate irony intended. For God seems to lurk everywhere in the background of this book. And the unlikely coincidences and remarkable deliverances that make the story so entertaining. That is so true. When you read it, like I said, God's not mentioned, but you're watching and you're saying, wow, this is definitely God, okay? Well, let's look at the book of Esther and see how God sovereignly moves to protect His people. Esther is the story of an orphaned Jewish girl who became queen of Persia and delivered her people with the help of her uncle. Now, the narrative itself teaches the story without mentioning God or giving prophetic explanations, as we said. Esther 1.1 says, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. This was a huge kingdom at this time. Now Ahasuerus is better known by his Greek name Xerxes I. He ruled the Persian Empire for 21 years from 45 to 465 B.C. He is mentioned elsewhere in the Bible only in Ezra 4.6, Daniel 9.1, Judah is one of the provinces over which he ruled, according to Nehemiah 1-2. Now, the king is having a six-month party, okay? It says in chapter 21, listen, for 180 days, he's having a banquet, he's having a feast, he's having a party. He called all these other rulers in, let's just party together for six months. And at the last week of the party, the Bible says he's feeling good from wine, So the guy's a little tipsy here. He's a little intoxicated. He sent his chamberlains and he said, bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princes her beauty. For she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Now, her action was a breach of etiquette. The king was used to getting whatever he desired, when he desired it. He's a king. Why did she refuse to come to the king? Well, we don't know, but Jewish tradition holds that Vastai was com- had been ordered to appear naked before the king. And, you know, hey, let me show you how beautiful my wife is. Let her come in here. That's a tradition that really has no historical support. I don't know how the Jews came up with that, but somehow they did. That was their tradition. The text doesn't tell us why she refused to come. But as we read, we see that God was removing her so that Esther could take her place. Now, when she did this, of course, the king is livid. I mean, this is wrong. How can, you know, and then the other rulers are go, hey, you can't let this stand. All our wives will be not obeying us and stuff. You know, all the, it'll be heard throughout the kingdom that women don't have to obey their husbands. So they're like, we got to do something. We got to get rid of this. So the king has Vastai put away 
and he decides to look for a new queen. Out of all the women brought to him, he chooses Esther. Esther 2.17 says, And the king loved Esther more than all the women. And they had a lot of women brought. They had a year-long uh, period to be ready to even see the king. Okay? Yeah, so they're, they're doing you know, makeup and all this stuff for a year to get these ladies ready to, for the king. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So they set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Asti. All right, now, Esther was an orphan who had been raised by her uncle Mordecai. Mordecai. All right, they were both Jews, but Mordecai had asked Esther not to reveal her kindred. Don't make it known. Don't tell anybody you're a Jew. So she's keeping that quiet. Mordecai had overheard a plot. He hung around in the gate a lot, and he heard a plot to kill the king. And so he calls Esther, and he tells her, and she goes and she reports this plot to the king. Now, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on gallows. Both these guys who plotted this were hanged. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. All right, so they killed these men, they wrote this down. What Mordecai had done gets written in the Chronicles, and that's kind of the end of it. Now, in the meantime, the king had promoted a man named Haman to the number two spot in the kingdom. And Haman came to hate Mordecai, Esther's uncle. All right, because, well, here's the text, Esther 3.2. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had no command concerning him. But, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. All right? Now, all the text tells us is that Mordecai wouldn't bow. And it tells us in 3.4 he was a Jew. Like, that's supposed to answer the question, but it really doesn't. We don't know why wouldn't he bow. The NIV Cultural Background Study Bible says this. You might be thinking, well, he's a Jew. That's why he wouldn't bow, because Jews didn't bow to people. Well, that's not true. Look at what it says. Ancient Near Eastern peoples often knelt before one another as a sign of respect. Israelites generally had no qualms with such demonstrations. And one of the scripture references he lists, they list here is 1 Samuel 20, verse 41, which says that David bowed to pay homage to Jonathan. So it wasn't a problem really for Jews. Given that prostration was such a common sign of respect, Mordecai's refusal to kneel down or pay homage or pay Haman honor, honor, is a mystery. So, we really don't know why he wouldn't bow down. It doesn't tell us. Alright, the text goes on. And when Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage to him, he was filled with fury. You know, when you're in a position that you think you're something, and people don't do what you say they should do, it really gets you angry. And here's this guy, he's filled with pride, and it's just, no matter what he has, or what he accomplishes, he can't enjoy any of it because this guy won't bow to him. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So he, makes it, he finds out this guy's a Jew and to kill all the Jews. So he, he wants revenge, but he doesn't want to make it look like it's a personal matter between him and Mordecai. So he gets this plot, this whip up these anti-Semitic feelings, let's just kill all the Jews. So Haman goes to the king with a plan to destroy all the Jews in the kingdom. Because they don't obey the king's laws. You know, he goes and tells the king, hey, these people don't obey your laws, they're trouble in your kingdom, we've got to get rid of them. So the king agrees to the plan, and the letters are sent throughout the kingdom. Esther 3.13 says, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's province." with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews. We're going to kill them all. Young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, to be plundered their goods. So, can you imagine being a Jew and you know this edict's put out, okay, on the 13th day of this month, all the Jews get to be killed. Anybody who doesn't like Jews, they just go kill them. Now, could God have supernaturally stopped this murderous plot? Absolutely, he could have. Could have just, you know, changed the king's mind so the king wouldn't go along with it. He could have done a lot of things. But he didn't. What he did was he worked through natural means to save his people. And it's just fascinating to read the story through this book and see God's hand behind so many things. 
Mordecai hears the plan about killing the Jews, and he tells Esther, go to the king, Esther, you've got to intercede on behalf of the Jews. And she's like, well, no one's allowed to go into the king unless the king calls you. So if I go in there, and he doesn't hold out the scepter to me, I could be killed. And he goes, well, that's okay, take your chances, because maybe you've been brought along for such a time as this. So she goes in and goes to the king. Well, in Esther chapter 6, reveals a remarkable way how God sovereignly used the most ordinary circumstances to accomplish His purpose. All right. Mordecai, after he hears this plan, he gets Esther to go in there. In the meantime, while this is happening, Haman builds a gallows because he's going to hang Mordecai on it. And and in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, on that night, and you've got to stop and say, on what night? Well, if you go back to chapter 5, it talks about that he is, Mordecai, or Haman's with his family, and they said, well, you've got to get rid of this guy. Just build a gallows. So he builds a gallows that night, and go ask the king for permission to kill him, Mordecai. So on that night, on the night that the gallows built, on the very next morning, Haman is coming in to ask to kill, to be able to kill, to hang Mordecai. All right? It says, the king could not sleep. So this night, oh, i just having trouble sleeping. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorial deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found how it was written that Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, and how they sought to lay hands on the king Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So look, what a coincidence. On this night, the night before the morning when Haman's going to come and say, can I kill Mordecai? The king can't sleep just on this particular night. And so he asked to be read the register of facts. That's not something I'd do if I couldn't sleep, all right? Why didn't he ask, get the musicians in here, let's play some soothing music that I can just fall asleep by? Was it just an accident that he asked to read this, and then the reader happened to read from the particular section of the book where Mordecai's actions are recorded? Just a lot of coincidences. Was it just a coincidence that happened on the very night that Mordecai was to be hung on the gallows in the next morning? Why... Hadn't Mordecai been rewarded before now? I mean, why did they just, when it happened, king didn't do anything? Why didn't he reward him when it happened? Well, a lot of questions. Let's read on. And the king said, who's in the court? Okay, he's, he's up. He's getting the Chronicles read. It's morning now. Who's in the court? And Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on a gallows. Well, he just hears about, this guy saved my life. And now here comes Haman wanting to get some killed. And he had prepared for him, that he had prepared for him. The gal is already built, he's ready to hang him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in. And the king said to him, what should be done to the man who the king delights to honor? And so Haman said to himself, well, who would the king delight to honor more than me? This guy's ate up with himself, people. Okay, Who would that be? It's obviously me he's talking about. So Haman said to the king, For the man who the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew. Oh my word, can you imagine? I'm here to ask to have this guy killed, and now you're telling me to bestow this huge honor on him, who sits at the king's gate, Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. 
Now, we got to ask, why did Haman show up at that moment to ask the king's permission to hang Mordecai? The answer to all these questions was that God was sovereignly orchestrating the events of that night to save the lives of his people. Esther goes to the king and he tells him she's a Jew. And she tells him of Haman's wicked plot to destroy all the Jews. So Haman is hanged on his own gallows. And Mordecai is promoted to the number two spot in the kingdom. And the king sends out an order to stop the slaughter of the Jews. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherefore the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now, since we see that God was sovereignly working out the events in Esther for the good of his people, are we justified in concluding that God always orchestrates the events of our lives to fulfill his purposes? Well, as we saw last week, according to Romans 8.28, I think we are. And we know that for those who love God, and that's, that's a believer. He's talking about the position of a believer. Your position before God is you are a God lover. Those who love God, all things work together for good. Whatever it is, it's working for good. Because we are the called according to His purpose. Most of us are tempted in times of adversity, I think, to question God's love. I see it all the time in people. When we're hurting badly, when our emotions cause us to feel like Maybe God has forsaken us because things aren't going the way we plan. But the Scriptures teach that God's love is just as real in times of adversity and times of difficult as times of blessing. God's love to us is unchangeable. Psalm 86, 15, But you, O Lord, are God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. If you want to be able to deal with the temptation to doubt God's love in times of adversity, you need to look to Calvary. The most convincing objective evidence of God's love for us is the giving of His Son to die for our sins. 1 John 4, 9-10. through We've just been through this in our study of John. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, God sent His only Son. This is a perfect active indicative. The incarnation and its results remain. This shows us what love is and what it means. Love is not only defined by the sacrifice of Christ, it is also defined by the giving of the Father. It was a sacrifice for the Father to send His Son, the second person of the Trinity, and to pour out the judgment we deserved upon Him. But God showed His love by meeting our greatest need, a need to be redeemed from eternal separation from Him. He said He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We know the propitiation is the removal of wrath by the offering of a sacrifice. Christ was a sacrifice that removed God's wrath. No matter how much difficulty... How much pain, how much heartache or calamity we go through in this life, it cannot compare with the catastrophe of eternal separation from God. And that has been redeemed. That has been fixed, people. We are in a relationship with God. Enmity has been put aside. And when life's circumstances are slamming your face in the dirt, when pain is pouring out every pore in your body, causing you to feel alone and forsaken by God, and you're in anguish and you begin to question God's love, just look to Calvary. God's love for you was clearly written in blood on the cross of Yeshua. So we know that God is sovereign. And we know this sovereign God loves us and He's controlling every event in time. Every circumstance is under His control. We might not like our circumstances. A lot of times we don't. But we can find great comfort in the fact that God is controlling them for our good. Alright, so two things that should bring us great comfort. First of all, our trust in the providence of God. And hopefully, the more you go over the sovereignty of God and understand His control, ho hopefully the more comfort you find yourself in. But secondly, the love and care of our friends. Now, when people 
are hurting. They don't just want to listen to a podcast of some sermon. When the bottom drops out of their life, they don't just want to hear theological truths. Often they want a shoulder to cry on. They want a person who cares. They want someone to help bind up their wounds. Someone who will listen. They want the security of a few close, intimate friends who will do more than say, I'll pray for you. They want a refuge. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua the Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. God comforts us. Why? So we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves were comforted by God. So these verses teach us that God comforts us in our adversity. And He does that so we will comfort others who are hurting. How does God comfort us in our adversity? Many times, He uses others. He uses others to comfort us so that we can be used to comfort others. Have you ever been in the pit of despair? I mean, just being overcome by your circumstances. I think a lot of people are right now. A lot of people are really scared. They're freaking out because of the hysteria that the news media is pushing. And so they're just overcome. I've been there. I've been in a circumstance where I've been overcome. And in those times, God uses His Word to strengthen me. I get in the Word of God. I begin to review my theology. And I'm encouraged and I'm strengthened. So God uses the Word of God. He uses that to strengthen me. But in those times in my life, He also uses my friends. And when I think of times of trial, when I think of times of great adversity in my life, I remember the comfort that I received from my friends. Friends who gave me encouraging words. You know, when we started this church 23 years ago, it was a very difficult time for Kathy and I. And I'll never forget, Cheryl, how you were always there over and over saying, it'll be all right. Giving us a hug. Giving Kathy a hug. Saying, it'll be all right. We'll get through this. That's important to hear from people. Those are words of comfort. My friends reminded me of what I knew the Scripture said and reminded me of God's faithfulness. You think, well, we already know that. Yes, but it's so encouraging to hear a friend come along and say, you know, God's still on the throne. He's still ruling. He's still reigning. And these people brought grace to me. They were used of God as a means of grace. Ministering to one another in a time of need is an important means by which God mediates grace to us. Did you hear that? Do you understand that? Right now, a lot of people are hurting. And when we minister to one another in times like this, God uses us, listen, to minister grace to other people. Do you understand that you can be a means of grace to somebody else? Look at Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, what's the means of grace here? It's our words to other believers. See, Yahweh uses our speech to give grace. Are you aware that you can be a means of grace in another believer's life? That's a sobering thought, people. I can impart grace to a fellow believer. Now, in our study of 1 John, We've been talking about the subject of love. John teaches us that anyone who does not love doesn't know God. Love is an important thing. And when we love one another, we do things like this. We get out of ourselves and we reach out to others. Yeshua taught how important love was when He was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? See, the Jews would label their commands like this is a priority this one's second this one you know this one's down the line of you have to obey but what's the great one they're asking him what's the what's the thing i really have to do and he said to him you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind this is the great this is the first commandment and a second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets this is the whole tanakh boils down to this love god love one another now, 
In the Gospel of Luke, a lawyer comes and he asks Yeshua for further clarification of the command by asking, well, who's my neighbor? Yeshua says, you've got to love your neighbor yourself. So he comes along and says, well, who? Who's my neighbor? And that's a good question. If we've got to love our neighbor, it's good to know who he's referring to. So Yeshua answers him with this parable in Luke 10, 30, 35. Yeshua replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place he saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, listen, people. Culturally, this is hysterical when you read this, okay? Because, you know, you read this and you think of a four-lane highway like we have out here, and you see the guy laying by the side of the road. We go way the other side of the road and go by him, right? This road was most likely a single-lane path just a footpath, on the side of a mountain, you would not be able to avoid this. You'd have to literally step over them. All right? So the priest and the Levite, they're full-time servants of God. They're on their way home from serving in the temple. This priest was the party of, the, of the party of the Sadducees. So here's a religious Jew, and he's going out of his way to walk by this dying man. Why? He's just heartless, cold individual? No. As a priest, he couldn't touch a dead body. All right, it would make him unclean. And so he doesn't really know, is this man dead? Is he alive? What's going on here? So he's unwilling to risk incurring corpse impurity on the chance that he may be able to help this guy. The Levite was also the party of the Sadducees, so he avoids this man also because the Torah says he should not defile himself. So basically, these guys are obeying Torah. We can't defile ourselves with a dead body. We'll just walk around this guy. But, the text says, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So now in the story, and this is a very unusual that he would use a Samaritan in the story. They wouldn't do this, but he used the Samaritan. Samaritans were hated by the Jews. They were the religious outcasts. But this Samaritan responds to the man, and he cares for his needs. Now, this is important to understand. There was no rabbinic school that interpreted the word neighbor here, liberal enough to include the hated, detested Samaritans. The different rabbinic schools would argue, well, who's a neighbor? Well, this person's a neighbor, that person's a neighbor, but none of them would include Samaritans. The scribes and the Pharisees considered the Samaritans as the most hated people on earth. Our text tells us that the Samaritan felt compassion for this hurt man. He went to him, he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, Then he sat him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. So the Samaritan acts on compassion. He helps this guy in need. Yeshua then asked the expert in the Torah, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? So the question is, who's my neighbor? So he says, okay, which one's a neighbor? to the man who fell among the robbers. So Yeshua is asking here, he's who's the neighbor? Most commentators, most Bible teachers would say that your neighbor is anyone with a need. Well, that's not coming out of this text, okay? Because according to the text, who's the neighbor? Next verse tells us. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Yeshua said to him, you go do likewise. So who's the neighbor? The Samaritan. (laughs) He's the one who showed mercy on the poor guy, right? The guy was beaten up. He He wasn't the one. It's the Samaritan. So the answer to the man's question, original question here, who's my neighbor? Yeshua's answer, the Samaritan. So who is it that you have to love? You're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. So who's your neighbor? Your neighbor's a Samaritan. Yeshua is forcing this man to say, even my enemy is my neighbor. Yeshua says to the man, you go, love your enemy. And Yeshua, I think, says to all of us, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. Now we know who the neighbor is. How are we to treat them? What does this parable of the Good Samaritan say to us 21st century American Christians? I don't know any Samaritans, do you? So how does this apply to me? Who are the Samaritans? Well, I think it's different for each of us. Because I think Yeshua is saying, 
I want you to love the person that you think is the most disgusting, the person you despise the most, that person that you don't even view as human. I want you to love them. So that's how far the Lord goes with loving. Now, if we are to love the Samaritans, those people we can't stand, those people we despise that we don't even think are human, how much more are we to be involved in loving each other as Christians, as children of God? And believers, we can't fulfill the Lord's command to love one another if we're not involved in each other's lives. If we don't know what's going on in other people's lives. Look at Philippians chapter 2, 3, and 4. The Lord says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. People, we could end a lot of problems if we would just follow this verse. Listen, count others more significant than yourselves. I dare say all of us have some people that we count more significant than ourselves, right? We view them somehow higher, and so they're more significant, we, can, we do that. But let me, let's face it, most people we don't treat this way. He said, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If we're so wrapped up in ourselves that we don't know what others need, then how do we care for them? How do we show love for them? How do we minister grace to them? We can't. We need to realize that individually, you and I are personally responsible for the welfare of one another. We're to look to the needs, the problems, the struggles, and temptations of one another. Now, the lack of concern, I think, that we see for each other today in the church is sad. I mean, we're just kind of all caught up in our own thing and don't seem to care about anybody else. It's sad, but it's not new. The early church had the same problems. Later, in this chapter, look what Paul writes. For I have no one like him, talking about Timothy, who will genuinely, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. He says, I don't have anybody like Timothy. Timothy really cares about you. He says, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ. This is a sad verse. He's saying they all just seek their own interests. What he's saying is that everybody is selfish. Paul's literally saying there's no other Christians at Rome apart from Timothy upon whom I can count to care for the Philippians. He really cares for them. And Paul speaks here in the present tense. They are all continually seeking their own interests. That's strong. And listen, here's what we have to get here. Paul is contrasting Timothy's concern for the Philippians with the lack of concern by others for Christ. Do you get that? For all seek their own interests, not those of Christ. He doesn't say that others care for themselves and not for you, but they care for themselves and not for Christ. Because to be concerned for other Christians is to be concerned for Christ. To love other Christians is to love His people. And I pray that God would help us all to have the attitude of Timothy that we would care for each other. And believers, right now, like I said, there's a lot of people hurting. They're scared. They're confused. They don't know what's happening next. Sometimes all it takes is a phone call. Pick up the phone, call them. How are you doing? Stop by your neighbors. Check on other believers and see how they're making out during this time. Like I said, some people are just panicked because of the media. Other people aren't worried about this at all. So if you're not worried, and you can get out of your house, then do it. Help somebody. It's my prayer that no one in this fellowship will feel like David when he prayed in Psalm 142, 2, 4. He says, Look to the right and see. There's none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains for me. No one cares for my soul. You know, how sad to think that no one cares for your soul. Believers, we need each other. That's what the body of Christ is all about. Let's not let this be true, that no one cares for your soul at, at Berean Bible Church. My prayer is that the people of Berean would be loving, caring people who are concerned for the welfare of others. We haven't been able to be together for the last three weeks now. 
I miss seeing other people, and hopefully you miss them too. But we need to do more than just miss them. We need to make sure they're okay. We need to talk to each other. I want to close with a statement that I started with. In the midst of difficult times, there's two things that I think carry us through. Number one, our trust in the providence of God. And secondly, the love and care of our friends. And believers, I think our responsibility before God as His children is to comfort others who are hurting. And we seek to help them to trust in the providence of God. We remind them of what God has to say. We encourage them. We maybe meet some physical needs that they have. But if you're okay, don't just be you know, happy. I'm, I'm okay. Everything's fine. No. Reach out to others. Use something. Use the Word of God to encourage them. Comfort them in this time of struggle. Because believers, we need each other. God put us together as a family to care and minister for one another because it's tough to be out there on your own. And I don't want anybody to feel like no one cares for my soul. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word, Lord. It is a two-edged sword. It cuts deep, Lord. And I pray that by Your Spirit, You would convict us. You would teach us. You would help us to be the people You've called us to be. Father, Father, I pray we would not be selfish and just focused on our own interest, but we would reach out in this time of need. As Gennady said in the message, this is a time to, for the church to shine, to reach out, to help others in need. Lord, help us to be concerned about others. And help us to reach out, help us to do something, to minister. Father, may we realize, may we recognize that we can minister grace to others in need. Help us to do so, Lord. Amen.